Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. And before we get started with today's show, I just want to extend an invitation to you to join me on a pilgrimage to the shrines of Belgium and also to Lourdes. It's a 12-day trip taking place May 29th to June 9th. We'll be visiting the Marian apparition sites in Belgium. We'll visit shrines and cathedrals. We'll visit roadside chapels, and we'll enjoy some Belgian beer. We'll end our trip in Lourdes, experiencing the healing that Lourdes can offer us. Anna Nuzo will be joining us as well, a Catholic musician and artist whose voice you hear every time you tune into the podcast because it's her musical voice that leads us into the show each week. I hope you'll give some consideration to going on this pilgrimage. And if you want to learn more, head on over to Nativity Pilgrimage, and I will put a link in the show notes so that you can readily find the pilgrimage and consider making your down payment today. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. On December 31st, 2022, the sad news reached the Catholic community that Pope Benedict XVI had passed away, that after his abdication of his papacy and going into a quiet retirement, that now he went home to the Father. Pope Benedict was given a title really as one of the Marian popes. Uh, I've been reading a lot. In fact, Cardinal Dolan the other day in a little video he did from Rome said that he was such a devotee of Our Lady. And I wanted to talk a little bit about his devotion to Mary. I did a quick little survey of it just by looking at his encyclicals, but I think there's a lot more that we can unpack. And I have a theologian who has written about Pope Benedict and he's going to be sharing a bit more for us so that we can learn about Pope Benedict's Marian thought. So uh, today I'm joined by Kevin Clark, Dr. Kevin Clark, who is a professor of theology at Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit, Michigan. He teaches alongside Dr. Robert Fastigi. And uh, I met Kevin a few years ago. He gave a paper at the Mariological Society of America meeting, which I currently uh, have the pleasure of serving as the president. And so uh, grateful that you are joining me today, Kevin. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Father Edward. It's uh, it's a pleasure to see you again, and congratulations on your your good work with your show. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, you know, so a lot of times the how they love Mary. Sometimes we talk about Mary. Sometimes we talk about other Catholic topics, but somehow she always is a part of the conversation. And uh, maybe just to begin with, Pope Benedict was such a great theologian. That was really what launched his. Uh, priesthood and his career in academia. He he was a professor. And then we have volumes of his works, and there's already talks by people. They they think that he should be one of the doctors of the church, you know, maybe a hundred years from now. But what influence did Pope Benedict have on you? Now, that's a great question. And yeah, I'm, I'm all behind the make Pope Benedict a doctor of the church uh, idea. I mean, he 
he really was uh, one of the great theologians of the 20th century. Um, and he had a huge impact uh, upon me. You know, I was born in 1980, which meant that when Pope John Paul II died, that was uh, my first experience of witnessing the the death of a pope. And the way that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger um, led the faithful through that time, basically he shepherded my heart uh, before I, I came to discover him as a theologian, right? And a little bit of other uh, uh, background context for me is that I used to be a, uh, a a copy editor at a newspaper, and so one of my one of my hobbies while I was working at the newspaper was to uh, filter through the newswire for Catholic stories. I had my search filter set, and I would read stories about the church. And there were so many, um, you know, Ratzinger. He he, he kind of. Be, uh, was a, a person, persona non grata among the media already well before he was ever considered for the papacy. You know, remember, uh, you know, things like, um, you know, the um, uh, God's Rottweiler, that kind of uh, image for, for Ratzinger. And when, when he was uh, um, thrust onto the you know, um, onto the stage, so to speak, or, or, uh, with the, or into the limelight when Pope John Paul II died, I did not find in him a Rottweiler. I found a gentle and loving shepherd who I thought, you know, I, th this, this man's message really resonates with me. And so I began I decided I was going to uh, purchase as many of his books as I could. And so I started reading from uh, Truth and Tolerance to Spirit of the Liturgy to uh, Ratzinger Report and, and on and on uh, as he was elected Pope. And so he just, he just had a really deep impact upon me as a theologian in my own growth. And uh, what about your experience, Father? Can you tell us a little bit about how his um, his his papacy affected you? Yeah, so Pope Benedict, I remember that was the first papal election I ever saw. Uh, I remember John Paul dying. This was, you know, of course, I think back in 2005. So uh, I was 16, I think, at the time or in my teens, but I had a great interest in faith already and was, was watching it. So... Um, I remember uh, a long time ago, there was this like Ratzinger fan club on the internet and I was a member of it. And right now, social media, you see people sharing their their steins or their coffee mugs or whatever. Uh, I didn't have any memorabilia, I don't think, or merchandise from it. So, uh, but yeah, there was something about him. And, and of course, becoming the Pope and I, I studied, you know, to be a priest really under his pontificate. Pope Francis would be elected uh, before I was ordained, but uh, he had an integral role in the formation of priests in the sense that we read his writings, you know, mm -hmm. Spirit and the Liturgy. Um, uh, that that very early book, uh, my my introduction gosh. to Christianity, yeah, introduction yeah. to Christianity, you know. So 
we read a lot of him. And then for me, as a guy who's interested in Marian theology or Mariology, you know, uh, I wrote a paper on Daughter Zion. So mm. uh, in which uh, I argued against Raymond Brown, which got me some like demerit points from from the biblical scholars at the seminary. <laughs> But always will. Yeah, this this is my (laughs) aside here, baby. But uh, in one of Brown's writings, I think it's uh, he he has a book on Mary. I forget what it's called. But Mm. in that book, he essentially says that we should not read any Marian reference into the prophecies of the Old Testament because they did not have Mary in mind. And so I just took strong issue with that. And so I argue, you know, I argue that we should read Mary into the prophecies and and everything like that. And so I was like put on a watch list for the STL and stuff. And (laughs) it's very interesting. Like, I'm not making this up, but all because you went after Raymond Brown. So uh, I'm a strong proponent that daughter Zion is our lady. I'm a strong proponent that the virgin who shall conceive and bear a son who is Emmanuel is the blessed virgin. And, And we see this all throughout uh, the scriptures. And uh, again, going on my side, uh, I tweeted the other day because it was the Feast of Mary, Mother God, and the Vespers antiphon talked about Mary as the burning bush. And, you know, yes. I've played that antiphon a long time. And just for whatever reason, that day I remembered, I, I was in a class for the STL, and I was talking about, um, I was talking about Mary and how she has often been uh, compared to the burning bush, that that's a, a that she personifies the burning bush and and whatnot. And this professor just like you know bombasted me and told me that I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm like my my gosh, this guy prays the liturgy of the hours. So I hope that every January first, he's reminded that Our Lady is the burning bush because of her perpetual virginity that was not taken from her. And uh, just like the bush was not consumed. So that's my long biblical aside. But Sure. Uh, and I, it's, I would say that it's, it's very unecumenical <laughs> in a way to, uh, to not read uh, Mary in the Old Testament. I mean, if you, if you look at the Byzantine liturgy, for example, the whole, the whole Byzantine rite and the many prayers that, uh, uh, that Eastern Catholics pray, that this sort of imagery is all throughout the 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 prayer life and so it support and to to the raymond brown point not to get too far aside from our our topic at hand but to the raymond brown point um there there is uh it just speaks to his his uh mo in reading scripture that he in, in a sense wanted to preserve the the um the a sense in which the Hebrew scriptures were for, for the Hebrew people, but he, I find that he doesn't really read the Old Testament in the spirit that Dave Verbum recommends, which is with the church, that, that uh, you know, the fathers of the church, the medievals, we we're not fundamentalists, right? We're not fundamentalists. We only focus on the literal sense. We, we open the, the, um, the text up to the, possibilities of the spiritual senses because there are two authors there's the human author and the divine author and the divine author fully intends this image of the burning bush to to uh uh convoke the uh, mystery of the incarnation in the womb of mary she is the bush that's not consumed so um you know just in support of what you were saying it's yeah this is absolutely the way the church reads uh 
read scripture. And Pope Benedict, in his writings, I think, uh, exemplified that very well, uh, that, um, you know, these sorts of, of images really come forth in how he uh, how he exegetes. Yeah, and this is something you bring out in a paper that you wrote or in an article in a book called De Maria Nuquam Satis, which in Latin translates of Mary Never Enough. Uh, it was a volume produced by the Ecumenical Society, um, an outgrowth of a conference, I believe. And, and you presented on Cardinal Ratzinger, and you write there, Cardinal Ratzinger outlines the theological principle of Mariology, not investigated by the human mind. The angel's greeting at the Annunciation identifies Mary with daughter Zion, the bridal people of God. Mary herself is now daughter Zion, the new dwelling place of God, his true temple. And you know, Pope Benedict has some very beautiful reflections about what Mariology is in his book, uh, Daughter Zion, that he wrote. Uh, he talks about Mariology in Holy Scripture and the overall pattern of its faith and, and prayer. So that's one aspect. But he, he really does delve into the biblical theology of Mary, of being an, a chosen woman of Israel, for example, of being Daughter Zion. And uh, you also write about some of the other scriptural components uh, of Ratzinger and, and kind of what he draws out uh, in his own theological and scriptural study. So uh, anything stand out to you in terms of Ratzinger, Mary, and scripture? Yeah, that, that's a great uh, starting point, the, the idea of a daughter Zion. And if you go to the very first word that the angel addresses Mary with, which is chire in Greek, uh, which we translate as rejoice. Uh, some Protestant exegetes would say, you know, this is the equivalent of hello or greetings. But uh, Chire, if you're familiar with the Septuagint, you know that in Zephaniah 3.14, in Zechariah 9.9, this word is uh, directed to daughter Zion, rejoice, daughter Zion. Um, and be because the messianic prophecies are fulfilled in her so when the angel says to her kyrie uh i mean this really is the starting point for ratzinger's mariology then the second word that he addresses to her ke which is in the greek i mean this is what uh how we it's very difficult to translate in in english we typically translate this as full of grace uh, but it's a perfect passive participle, uh, and what we might call a theological passive, that that Mary is perfectly, perfect, uh, passive, she is, this action is accomplished on her, she's graced by God. And we have to keep in mind that Jesus is not yet incarnate in her when the angel addresses her this way. Pope Benedict calls this uh, uh, Mary's most perfect name, in, in a sense, or, or he says, this is Mary's most beautiful name. Uh, he says, quote, she has always been and will always be the beloved, the elect, the one chosen to welcome the most precious gift of all, Jesus. So, um, so, and she has prepared a place for, for the Lord. So when the angel comes, uh, she considers these things in her heart but pope benedict points out uh with uh i think with de la Pottery, uh that that mary has um a dialogue 
in her heart to show that, that that she's contemplating the very mysteries and the events as they are taking place before her. So that in the the Greek it's a dialogizomai, uh, uh, di, uh, which is the, uh, the the Greek for to consider. But that's where we get the word dialogue, right? So Mary is having a kind of an inward prayer dialogue as she's receiving the message of the angel, because she's so um, deeply united with God in her prayer life, in her contemplative life, and is a perfect model for uh, for uh, for our prayer. The Blessed Virgin is present in sacred scripture, just as we talked about daughter Zion and how she uh, is really this embodiment, the fulfillment of it. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the parallels between what the prophet says and how Mary is greeted. If you do a side-by-side -side comparison, you see that, you know, it's very similar, much like the fact that the Magnificat that Mary gives in Luke's gospel is really a paraphrase in a sense. It's her own remaking of that prayer of Hannah. And mm -hmm. This is something that Pope Benedict brought out in one of his apostolic exhortations uh, concerning the um, uh, the word of God. Um, and so he talks about Mary being a woman who knows the word and allows that word to really uh, be a part of her entire life. She She's the mother of the word incarnate, but then even the very words. Um, you know, so... Um, as we think about the Magnificat, as we think about even Mary's responses in sacred scripture, you know, for us, we take what Mary says. She says, let it be done to me according to thy word. Well, we want to echo and have our own fiat that resounds throughout time. So I think Mary's fiat and Mary's Magnificat are central elements uh, of Mariology in terms of scripture. But it's also something, too, that Pope Benedict brings out. Uh, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, he talks about how the, um, you know, the Magnificat, it's a portrait of Mary's soul, right? She, um, when she speaks these words uh, in her, her greeting to Elizabeth, she essentially shows that she is fully imbued with sacred scripture, right? She, as the Pope says, it's um she speaks she speaks and thinks with the word of god the word of god becomes her word and her word issues from the word of god here we see how her thought her her thoughts are attuned to the thoughts of god how her will is one with the will of god in quotes so pope benedict um sees her as this um this interpreter of scripture as you know in a sense and we pray this prayer every day in the church in the the hours so it's something that mary has given to us um you know this uh, reflection upon god's action throughout salvation history culminating of course with the gift of her son and i like to see when, when i read luke uh, luke 1 I like to see the juxtaposition of the Zechariah uh, angelophany with with Mary's angelophany, and and compare the two, and how with Zechariah you have, you know, this elder, this this uh, this priest of Israel, who uh, 
to whom a miraculous birth is announced, the birth of John the Baptist. And he questions the angel, but his question is one of doubt. Uh, when Mary questions the angel, she says, how will this be for I know not man? We see a very different kind of questioning because hers is not a question rooted in doubt, but one rooted in faith. She wants to know how uh, this would be accomplished in, in her life because, and for Augustine, for example, uh, saw this as evidence of a vow of virginity. So perhaps that is uh, something that is in the background there. And she knows that God will honor that. Well, Zechariah is struck silent for his doubt. Mary is, uh, she greets Elizabeth. She's, she still has full faculties of her voice. And so it's interesting when, when the two come together in the visitation, how you have this contrast of sound and silence. And Elizabeth, when she meets Mary, she cries out with a great voice. You can imagine how silent her household must have been for those uh, several months after the Annunciation to, uh, to Zechariah. So there's this beautiful interplay where, and, and Elizabeth, who gives us the, uh, you know, second part of the intro to the Hail Mary, um, we, we also hear from her, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And so this faith of Mary really is central to Pope Benedict's um, uh, understanding of, of right Mariology is, is the, the way that Elizabeth extols her faith. And we see that exhalation of her faith as well, um, you know, in the Gospels. Uh, one of my favorites, the, this woman from the crowd cries out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that fed you. And Jesus says, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it in their life or um, so, something along those lines. And and uh, but it's a praise of Mary's faith and her belief and her trust and her surrender uh, to the will of God. And and I often think about that lady who cries out, like, who is she? Did she just? Uh, I, I gave a homily at Relevant Radio on this, just musing about who that woman was and what compels her to make this proclamation. And I want to go back and revisit that homily because I've forgot the points of it. But uh, you know, but it is something to to marvel at the faith of mary and one of the things i always talk about in, in terms of mary is that you know you talked about saint augustine and the vow of virginity is that mary allowed god to change the plans for her life so she had one mindset she was going to serve god in this virginal marriage with joseph but then the angel comes and she says well god i want what you want and so i will do this if this is what you're asking and and uh, th that is the deep faith of Mary. And, and then, you know, I guess, too, you could br bring in some of the dogmas there, like the Immaculate Conception, that uh, without sin, that God had prepared her for that very moment of her saying yes and such. But, yeah, that faith that she even had as she stood beneath the foot of the cross, uh, seeing her son crucified, that she didn't doubt, that she still was steadfast in faith. And and uh, she's a great example, I think, for all believers, uh, for us uh, to, to really stand in faith. Yes. And Pope Benedict points out, uh, if I could go and uh, uh, just kind of riff off what you're saying here, that uh, at the foot of the cross, that her, her yes, her fiat continues to the foot of the cross. 
in that that's where she becomes the mother of all believers. Uh, and, and he points, he makes a, um, a, a similar point as what, it, again, Ignace de la Poterie makes in his book, Mary and the Mystery of the Covenant, which uh, unfortunately I believe is uh, is now out of print, but hopefully some publisher out there will uh, bring it back. But anyway, in, um, in Mary and the Mystery of the Covenant and in Pope Benedict's uh, homilies, uh well Pope Benedict points out that uh that uh the Greek there that John takes her into his home right uh, that's how it's often translated into his into his home but the Greek is Aesta which uh the Pope suggests more means that John becomes Marian. He takes her Asta Idia into his own things, into his reality. Um and, and that's where the title for my article uh in the De Maria Numquam Sadis uh volume comes from that that idea of into our reality that that the Pope invites us to follow the example of the beloved disciple and accept Mary into our own reality. And it's interesting to think about like how we read the Gospel of John. Whenever we read the Gospel of John, uh, it's written in such a beautiful way. We're, we're meant to imagine ourselves in the place of the beloved disciple, right? He reclines at the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. Um, and so, so also should a beloved disciple do, be close to the heart of Jesus, right? Um, but for the um for people who are who are skeptical about Mary's place in our lives well they would read John 19 and the, would talk about the beloved disciple as oh well that just pertains to John that doesn't pertain to me you know well, this is just sort of the last will and testament and the pope resists this idea that that we um th that Jesus is just sort of making sure that his mom is cared for but um, but that there's a deeper a deeper uh, theological significance that the word of God proceeds from the mouth of God and accomplishes that for which it is uh, purposed. And so when he says, "Son," when he says, "Woman, behold thy son," the son behold thy mother. There's a real accomplishment of an adoption that actually does take place, uh, you know, from the mouth of the Lord upon the cross. So I want to maybe draw our attention to another aspect of uh, Pope Benedict and especially his significance with the Eucharist. And when we talk about the liturgy, uh, we talk about the mass being Calvary, where Christ is sacrificed once and for all. And so we participate in that every time that we go to mass. And right now, the United States bishops have the church on this three-year trajectory of the uh, Eucharistic revival of wanting to deepen our Eucharistic belief. And uh, there was uh, a document that our Holy Father uh, wrote, Sacramentum Caritatis, in which he calls Mary the woman of the Eucharist, for example. And then he talks about the heavenly liturgy is mirrored in her. So 
I, I think that's a very beautiful uh, sentiment that the, he writes, the beauty of the heavenly liturgy, which must be reflected in our own assemblies, is faithfully mirrored in her. So, so in a sense, she anticipates the liturgy that we celebrate. And and Paul VI kind of writes about this in Mariel's Cultus. He talks about Mary as the virgin who brings her offerings and makes sacrifice and such. So there's this kind of line that he goes on with all these different titles of Our Lady and the Temple and the sacrifice and such. But there's something there, I think, about Our Lady and the Eucharist and maybe even mediation. And so uh, what's the connection there, especially with Pope Benedict? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, you know, he calls her uh, the woman of the Eucharist in his writings. And and so in a way, this is very deeply connected with, I, I believe, Lumen Gentium 58, where it talks about the um, how she uh, uh, lovingly consented to the immolation of the victim born of her, which you see. Uh, throughout her life, you know, you mentioned the the visit or the um, presentation in the temple where she hears the words of Simeon about the sword that will pierce her own heart, and then um, at, at Calvary, where in, in a way she stands united with Christ in the sacrificial offering, the the Stabat Mater, the standing mother who is there at the foot of the cross, essentially in her heart. Um, she is uh, offering the victim in her yes to God's divine plan that he offer this sacrifice for the remission of our sins. And so she's a perfect model for the um, the priesthood of the lay faithful, right? You know, the the um, in how we all participate in the um the uh priesthood of christ but she in in a much higher way because none of us can really give permission to god to become incarnate <laughs> as she did so she has this special place in salvation history and and that's why also this theme of her being the mother of priests um she maternally shows how how to uh, how to offer, how to consent to the divine plan in, in perfect obedience, and then how to support the work of her beloved son. Yeah, and one of the titles you mentioned, women, woman of the Eucharist, but then he goes on to call her the model of Eucharistic life. Yeah. And when I think about Mary and the Eucharist, and I have Father Daniel Lord, who's a Jesuit who died in the 1950s, he worked in the early 1900s, but uh, his work has greatly influenced me uh, in terms of the Eucharist and thinking about Mary. But, you know, Mary would have received Holy Communion, that she would have had maybe even her viaticum, that she would have had her first Holy Communion. Uh, and so all of these different sentiments, Mary participating in the Mass. And so yeah. if we envision that, well, then that allows us to maybe see her as the model of Eucharistic life, as Pope Benedict calls her. But how do you think she does model that Eucharistic life? Hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful image, the idea of her um, receiving communion, you know, how it, talk about like the different modes of the Lord's presence in her own life, you know, one uh, dwelling in her bodily, 
as as the the, the Christ child before his birth, and then um, nursing at her breast. I mean, she grew him. His blood was Marian. You know, he has no human father. His uh, his his whole being, as it were, uh, his whole human nature. It 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 all comes from uh, from Mary, and uh, and he is truly uh, born of her. And then, but to think about the, um, you know, the the Acts one Mary, you know, the the church gathered around Mary in prayer uh, when when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the forms of tongues of fire, and then the spread of the church. So so she's there to to see it all, um, and, and we see that that the early church in Acts two forty two they were devoted to the uh to the teaching of the 12 apostles to the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers so this early uh, uh christian community the 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 way as they were called in the early church mary was there and she was devoted to the breaking of the bread um and so uh we we find in her uh an, an example of one who always points the way to her son. Now, so, and the Eastern icons, for example, um, uh, do this very well. And even the Western ones too, like Our Lady of Shestahova or Our Lady of Perpetual Help, where, where, um, where, where the, uh, the Virgin seems to always be gesturing toward her son. And this is our gaze when we, when we are at the mass or when we are, uh, praying in Eucharistic adoration, our hearts are oriented toward uh, toward her son. Now, one of the really interesting things about Pope Benedict's Marian theology is is that he talks about Mary as um, a kind of an image of the Father. That um, uh, with with Mary. Um, you have, uh, you know, of course, well, uh, you know, Christ is the the image of the invisible God, but um, but but Mary talks about there. There's a certain, or, or Pope Benedict talks about there's a certain aspect in which uh, Mary and her suffering, her compassion, uh, gives a unique insight into God's own rahamim, His mercy. His um, his loving condescension uh, towards sinners that that uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and we see Mary for the cross. She also uh, so loved the world that she consented to this this plan of salvation. So, um, you know, a lot of times our we we struggle to conceive of uh what the, the the father must be of course jesus is that image of the father but but mary helps us to understand him she helps us to um to to know the truth about god's uh deep mercy um his his tender compassion for uh for ephraim for example in hosea 11 uh this is so wonderfully lived out in mary's life We've talked a lot about theology and Pope Benedict's Marian theology, but 
I think kind of what appeals to the common person, a, a believer, is that of devotion, of being devoted to Mary. And I know Pope Benedict, uh, I, I was listening to this uh, audiobook. book. Uh, I was doing an interview for the History Channel and just wanted to reacquaint myself with some facts about Fatima. So I listened to um, The Last Secret of Fatima to kind of just get some nuggets and whatnot. And uh, at the end of the book, there was kind of this reflections about Pope Benedict and such. Uh, and uh, the Cardinal was saying, well, when I would walk with Pope Benedict, he would often stop and pray the rosary before a statue of Our Lady in the Vatican Gardens, that he would sit down on the bench and there he would pray. So he was a man devoted to the rosary, we can say that. And then just uh, other different acts of devotion. So I, I read somewhere that he gave one of his Episcopal rings uh, to a shrine and laid it at the feet of Our Lady there. And so uh, that was in Bavaria. Uh, you bring out in your paper that he composed a, a prayer uh, to some interesting um, title of Our Lady, uh, Our Lady of Shishan. Uh, mm -hmm. He writes a prayer. So you have that. Um, he's a pilgrim. He went to different Marian shrines during his papacy. He went to Lourdes, you quote at some length, uh, his reflections in Lourdes. Uh, so he's been to Marian shrines. And then the fact that he abdicated on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, I think that's significant as well. But he yes. was a man devoted to Our Lady. And so um, what, what do you know or, or how could you comment on that devotion uh, of Pope Benedict? Yeah, I mean... You, you clearly see that he is a um, he's a Marian pope. And uh, I, I think John Allen had an article about this uh, at, uh, you know, on the National Catholic Reporter when he was still with them. And, um, and there was another uh, the the um, University of Dayton has a helpful uh, piece on their website uh, on the on the Marian uh, library website about um uh, pope benedict's mariology and his devotions but but yeah i mean uh when, when he was um when he abdicated it was on the feast of our lady of lords uh february 11th uh, 2013 or when he announced it i remember i was i was sick as a dog and and uh, i was heartbroken because i you know had a deep um, felt like I, I had a deep uh love and sense of spiritual sonship with with this holy father um but um but yeah he was renowned for his uh his devotion to our lady and a really good example of of uh, of that same marian devotion you think about uh, pope francis for example his devotion to our lady undoer of knots a key image from irenaeus whom he just elevated as doctor of the church mm. uh but um John Paul II, Pope Benedict, uh, Pope Francis, we we, we have such um, such great examples. Now, interestingly, you mentioned Our Lady of, of Shashan. This was the um, uh, uh, this is a shrine in China, and so our the the Chinese Christians are currently and during the time of Pope Benedict were under. Uh, extreme duress as a believing community so he 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 writes this 
this beautiful prayer to Our Lady of Sheshan that uh, helps us to, really helps the uh, Catholics in China to uh, to understand how Our Lady is um, is with them in their sufferings. Just to quote a brief passage from that prayer, he said, when you obediently said yes, in the house of Nazareth, you allowed God's eternal son to take flesh in your virginal womb, and thus to begin in history the work of our redemption. You willingly and generously cooperated in that work, allowing the sword of pain to pierce your soul until the supreme hour of the cross, when you kept watch on Calvary, standing beside your son, who died that we might live. So, uh, yeah, in his his message to the, uh, the the sick on the feast of Our Lady of Lourdes in two thousand eight was um, was uh, similar, the same kind of resonance of Our Lady suffering with us. Um, you know, I, I I don't I only regret not not writing a uh, a second part of this essay because I was. Um, um, you know, I, it was published in 2008, and he still had five years left in his papacy. So I hope to uh, come back to this at, at some point and fully explore more of what he taught in the latter part of his papacy, because I sort of caught him at the almost the halfway point. Um, but, you know, it's, in, it's interesting also, uh, infancy narratives, the uh, the book that he wrote, the third part of the Jesus of Nazareth uh, series, and <clears throat> there, um, in, in infancy narratives, which was a very misunderstood text, uh, the media tried to paint him as a, an iconoclast, that he was, uh, you know, denying that there was a, an ox and an ass at the, uh, you know, in the manger scene, when he was just simply pointing out that, that uh we take that from Isaiah, uh, not from the gospel itself. So, um, but anyway, you have a really strong um, uh, affirmation in that text of Mary's perpetual virginity, her, what we would call in part to virginity, that, that there was something miraculous about her birth giving. And so, um, and, and this is a really hard saying for a lot of, uh, for a lot of people, uh, the idea that, um, that that she um gave birth in a way that was beyond nature but as the fathers of the church understood you know she can she conceived without as she conceived without pleasure so she bore without pain um and so uh pope benedict in that in that work um really he, he becomes an interesting source for the um the, the dogma of perpetual virginity also affirming that that Christ that, that what this dogma says about Christ's divinity right if he's not God over nature the Pope the Pope says uh then he is no God at all mm. so anyway he, he he's really a um you know he, even at in that later work uh from uh, toward the end of his papacy, which of course he asserts is not part of his papal magisterium, which is an interesting question also. Should, do we have to listen to him in terms of what he says about that? I mean, is there is there kind of a middle authority between, you know, what, 
he says as a theologian and he happens to be he happens to be pope so um you know is not just like any old theologian writing a book uh he is the holy father so um so it's it's an interesting um work to look at and and find mary uh there as well uh toward toward the end of his papacy so you mentioned Pope Benedict wrote this trilogy, Jesus of Nazareth. The, so that series is, he, he kind of wrote it out of order. I think he wrote the middle of Jesus's life. Then he wrote the passion and then he wrote the birth yeah. and uh, the infancy narrative. So uh, we mentioned at the very beginning, he has volumes of books that he has written. And, um, you know, if you were to recommend one book to someone to say, if you want to read Pope Benedict, this is where I think you should start or begin. What would that book be? Well, my favorite um, is, and a lot of people pose this question, they would say Introduction to Christianity, Spirit of the Liturgy, um, Nature Mission of Theology is also a really good one. Um, but you know, as as a biblical theologian, I, of course, I would recommend his Erasmus lecture in 1988 when he was still cardinal, and uh, and also Verbum Domini uh, are key. But for me, it doesn't get any better than "Behold the Pierced One," uh, where he sets the the image of the pierced heart of the Savior, the Sacred Heart, um, as the uh, for for us to fix our gaze upon uh, him and see in that sacred heart the depths of God's love for mankind, mm. and I think in in that work and really in all of his works you see encapsulated his last words uh, that that he would would say upon his deathbed, um, Jesus, I love you. Mm. You see in in Cardinal Ratzinger in Pope Benedict not the words of a of of uh, someone who's simply doing theology but but one who is deeply in love with god and and so he becomes such a perfect example for the theologian of how one's love for god should inform one's theological or theological work and research and of course his love for god leads him to love his mother <laughs> The, um, the the mother of, of his savior and ours, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Behold the Pierced One. I have that on my bookshelf, but it, it wouldn't have been one that I would have readily called to mind. But uh, I actually admittedly probably haven't even read it in its entirety. So, you know, that might be one for me to pull off during the season of Lent and uh, maybe dedicate myself. And maybe that's what somebody wants to do this year, you know, in the aftermath of Pope Benedict's death. Uh, maybe you read the the passion account uh, that that Pope Benedict writes in his Jesus of Nazareth series. It's got a yeah. cover from Ignatius Press, and maybe that's your Lenten companion this year. Um, just uh, wanting to get into the mind of Pope Benedict. So, well, Dr. Kevin Clark, this has been a great conversation. We've touched on a lot of Pope Benedict, a lot of different aspects of Marian teaching and theology. And uh, I, I know that this is a great tribute uh, to the Holy Father and to uh, his papacy and what uh, he taught 
and his life as a theologian as well, as we touched on those years of his life. So thanks so much for your willingness to uh, come on and discuss this with me today. Well, it was my pleasure, Father Looney, and thanks again for uh, the gracious invite. I'm I'm always happy to talk about uh, Pope Benedict or anything Mariology. So uh, uh, keep up the good work and and uh, and do stay in touch. We'll do. Well, thanks so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I hope that it was enriching for you, that it deepened your love for Mary. And if you don't mind, would you please do a few things? First, follow me, Father Edward Looney, on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle at FR Edward Looney. Also, you can follow my YouTube page and you'll be able to see the video content that I put out each week. And if you don't mind, could you rate and review this podcast? Go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate it. And if you're able, write a review because that will help others to find this podcast as well. I appreciate you tuning in week after week. I would appreciate your prayers. And please know that I remember you in mine as well. Until next time, may God bless you and Mary pray for you.